Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode where we are chatting about dairy, artificial sweeteners, menopause, how to be hot flash free, how to lose weight if you're in menopause, grains and how to cook them so you don't have to deal with the anti-nutrients, how to rid yourself of allergies completely, and whether chlorella or spirulina are safe for you. And if not, which one is dangerous and why? And we are having this awesome conversation with Todd Caldicott, who is out of Canada. He is a medical herbalist and practitioner of Ayurveda since 1995. He is also the executive director of Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine, author and editor of three books, including Ayurveda, The Divine Science of Life, Food as Medicine, and Ayurveda in Nepal. He, in fact, just came back from Nepal, and hopefully we'll get to hear some of the stories. Todd, welcome. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So so let's get started with what is the purpose of detox according to Ayurvedic principles? Well, Ayurveda doesn't use that word detox, so we have to do a little bit of translation of terms and understandings as well. Because so I think there's a lot of confusion about what detoxification is mm-hmm. and in in natural medicine circles and its implication for a scientific understanding versus that of uh, what's used or understood in Ayurveda or other systems of traditional healing. So if we, if we first just look at the word from a scientific perspective, detoxification, one thing that becomes clear is, is that we're always detoxifying, that detoxification is just a natural physiological process that we are mm-hmm. constantly engaged in. And there are specific organs, but every cell participates in this process of detoxification. We have specialized cellular, or, um, um, cellular structures, like the endoplasmic reticulum, for example. It kind of functions like the liver of every single cell. So every cell participates in this detoxification because when a cell absorbs nutrients and it utilizes nutrients, there are waste products that have to be dealt with as a result. So detoxification is just a normal part of our, of our human physiology. And so when you hear people being skeptical about detoxification, say from a skeptical scientific side, they're not really understanding the actual science behind it. And all that we'd be saying from a natural medic, med, medical perspective is that there are ways that we could enhance that natural physiological process. Right now, there are lots of claims as to what can be done with detoxification and what kind of results can be obtained. And there are lots of different types of methods and not all of them necessarily may be as valid as the other. So it does take a fair amount of effort to sort of sort sort through the, the warp and weft of all these different techniques and beliefs and perspectives to kind of come up with one that has a basis in both tradition and also can be supported by a scientific understanding. So in Ayurveda, there's also a concept of, of detoxification. Although we use a different term, we use the term shodhana, 
which is purification. And specifically, it doesn't refer to the purification of wastes from the body, but rather the purification of, of, um, from the pure, from the impure doshas. So these are homeostatic imbalances that arise within the body through improper diet, you know, poor lifestyle habits, environmental factors. It disrupts these homeostatic mechanisms and then measures are undertaken to purify the body of those increased doshas. Now that isn't exactly the same as purifying the body of wastes because what you're doing essentially is right. you are trying to restore someone to a state of homeo- homeostasis, to a state of balance. And that's not exactly what we understand through the concept of, of detoxification, but it does have a similarity there. So let's talk about the protocol for detox. What would you recommend someone who's listening in and says, you know, I want to I do some easy, light detox. What would you recommend? Well, the simplest recommendation would be to avoid all those components of what we call the standard American diet. So there are a lot of diets out there, a lot of books written on, on diets, and they all claim to get all these great results. If they do get results, one of the commonalities that every one of these diet books recommend is to avoid eating all those components of the standard American diet, all those convenient junk foods, fast foods, refined foods that comprise so much of our diet that we get used to eating on a regular basis because they're cheap, they're convenient, they're easy, Uh, but those need to be eliminated. So for a lot of people, just eliminating that itself can serve as a very powerful detox. Because remember, our bodies are always detoxifying. So what we want to do is we want to remove the obstructive elements in our diet that would impair detoxification. We don't even necessarily, in many cases, need to speed it up or to make it more efficient in an active way. We just need to remove the encumbrances that, that, uh, that uh, allow it to be dysfunctional. Interesting. And then what would you so, add to the program? So go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, so what I would say is, is that for if, if you're looking at like a, the components of the standard American diet, I would eliminate all the flour products from their diet. I would eliminate all sweeteners and refined sugars from their diet. I'd remove dairy from their diet, with the exception of a little bit of butter or ghee. Uh, I would remove all fried food from their diet, and especially deep fried foods. And I would also eliminate much of the animal products that they would be eating, not necessarily eliminate all the meat that they're consuming, but we would reduce a lot of it. And we would choose certain types of animal products, certain types of foods, which are lighter, that aren't so heavy. So we would avoid beef and pork, really greasy, heavy, fatty meats. And if meat was still to be consumed, it would be smaller amounts, it would be leaner, it would be lighter, so like fish, poultry, etc., but just much smaller amounts. And but you would allow you would allow mm-hmm. meat. So you wouldn't just say it needs to be a vegetarian diet, you would allow meat. It depends. What I'm saying is that what the everyday diet of what people eat in America these days is a disaster. And if you just eliminate all of those industrialized foods from the diet, that alone will serve as a very powerful detoxification. If you made no other change but to eliminate all those fast processed foods from your diet, you just eliminated them. Be surprised how many foods, uh, how much of that actually comprises a, a person's everyday diet. It's huge. 
And one of the things you'll be noticing is that, well, I'm going to be eating a lot more vegetables than I ever ate before on this diet. So certainly increasing your vegetable and plant uh, consumption is going to be a major part of this as well. Um, Got it. But, but it doesn't it might be that a vegetarian diet is appropriate. It depends on the individual. Like in Ayurveda, we've got different constitutional types, a lot of the kapha and combinations and different disease types that conform to those doshas. So someone that's very thin, skinny body type, you can't put them on a profound detox. You can't put them on a one-week water fast. You know, they won't do well. They'll, they'll, it'll be counterproductive. Um, likewise, someone who's naturally very corpulent in Ayurveda, we call them more kapha body types. You know, just making some minor tweaks to their diet and removing certain foods might not be enough to initiate the kind of detoxification or cleansing response that we want. So we could, our, our detoxification could range anywhere from something like a water fast to just consuming a simple diet. And then what constitutes that simple diet, that could be just a very healthy version of the diet that they're consuming now, or it could be something that is even a little more spartan. So one example, you're familiar with it, you mentioned it before, is, is kitchari. Kitchari is rice and mung bean soup. And this is a component of the graduated diet. So eating something like kitchari for one to two weeks, while not being an optimal source of nutrients, can be a very powerful way to cleanse and detoxify, not because the food itself is necessarily oriented towards that, but because when you're eating rice and dal, and just rice and dal on a regular basis, no matter how good you make it taste, after eating it every day, all day, for three or four days, you're pretty much sick of kitchari and dal and rice. Like, that's it. Like, it's, you know, most people, it's like, yeah. ah, it's enough, right? So day three. What happens, yeah. yeah. So what happens is that if you keep eating it, you're just going to be eating enough to satisfy you. Like, you're only going to be eating it if you have an appetite. It's like, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, just rice and dal. I guess I'm not that hungry. All right. Well, okay, now I'm really hungry. I'm going to eat some rice and dal, but I'm, I'm not going to overeat it. I'm not going to eat so much that I, you know, I'm going to eat too much of it. I'm always going to be eating just enough to meet my, my energetic needs, and that's it. So it helps to retrain your relationship with food because a lot of us, you know, we, like, you know, we call ourselves foodies. We enjoy eating out. We enjoy exotic flavors, and, you know, one of the issues is that we end up overeating and we sort of derange our taste orientation so that we put the, we put our tongue in charge of our diet instead of our stomach. And there's a saying in Ayurveda that, you know, he or she who controls their tongue controls their life because the tongue itself is a metaphor for desire and it's desire that usually brings us our biggest so problems true. in life. Our biggest so, downfall, that chocolate yeah. brownie in that corner. Yeah. Yeah, well, they raga and dvish, they call it, you know, desire versus aversion. We're always compelled by these two. And what orientating your diet towards eating these simple foods does is, is it reduces the influence of the tongue and its ability to commandeer uh, your diet and just gets you back to eating the food which your body needs to function. So this is the, one of the benefits also of undertaking and detoxification is it helps to serve as a reset. You know, because, you know, I've over the years, you know, I've, I've taught classes out of town and and, you know, people come from out of town. They're they're living in hotels and they're living in a and b and they are eating here and there and they're going to coffee shops. And, you know, very often they complain like, I don't know, I'm just like my diet's like in chaos. I just can't control anything. And so 
you know, following a simple regimen like this can be very healing because uh, it provides the required stability that the body's looking for of simple, easily digestible nutrients that aren't going to overstimulate the desire for food. Mm-hmm. Is there anything beyond food that Ayurveda recommends in terms of detox? Well, once again, Ayurveda doesn't really advocate for this process of detoxification like you find in the West in natural health circles. It's not the same process. It's, it's, it's a different process. So there are herbs that we will use to reduce the doshas. And once again, this is about restoring homeostasis. So it's hard for me to talk about it from a strictly basis of Ayurveda. So if I sort of just extend beyond Ayurveda and just talk more generally about natural health and we'll include some science within it and some natural health practices, when we look at the body, the body has natural mechanisms of detoxification. So every cell has uh, this capacity for detoxification, but there are certain organs that that are that are more focused on that particular act. And these are the eliminatory organs. So these would be like the lungs, it would be the bowels, it would be the liver, it would be the kidneys, it would be the skin. So these are the okay. you know the five channels of elimination. So we can engage in a number of practices that we could utilize to upregulate the function of those different organ systems. So for example, if the liver, the liver is the body's chief organ of detoxification. And so if we want to support this process of detoxification, there are herbs, there are things that we can take that support that process for the liver. And there are all kinds of herbs. Most of them tend to be kind of bitter in flavor to upregulate the synthesis and excretion of bile. Others might contain sulfur to help with different facets of hepatic detoxification. So there are many herbs that people will take on a detox. You can get them on a, in a kit you know, you can get a, um, a product from the store and you look at the herbs. If it's, a, if it's a well-formulated product, then it's going to be containing herbs that traditionally are active on these different organ systems. So herbs that help to upregulate liver function, herbs that help to upregulate kidney function, herbs that help to upregulate bowel function, etc. So there's a, there's a cornucopia of herbs that you could take and other substances that could help support all those different organ systems. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. How about emotional detox? Is that something that uh, Ayurveda talks about? You know, once again, Ayurveda is, has its own particular cultural context, and mm-hmm. people function very differently in in India than they do in Western society. People maintain a lot more intimate contact with each other. They their family relations are, are usually a lot tighter. Uh, there isn't the same boundaries around personal space that people have here in the Western world. Uh, people have a lot more uh, religious or spiritual faith per capita than people would have in the Western world. So they have different societies and different needs in that regard. Uh, Also, you might have noticed, being Indian yourself, that the pace of life tends to be a lot slower in India. People don't tend to move so fast. They can, but there's a, you know, it's like Mexico, and it's like any kind of warm tropical climate, you know, as it gets warmer, people tend to move a little bit more slowly just to, you know, not overexert themselves and and create all this excess heat. So Mm -hmm. we don't really understand that at all. And we have fractured societies. Uh, We don't have very strong family units. Uh, We we are very affluent in the West, so we have no reason to be dependent upon each other. So we just tend to keep to ourselves. 
there's all these impediments to creating emotional connection in our Western society that, yeah, for sure, we have to address those issues. Detoxification is a process of letting go. And so if you, you know, as Williams Woodworth said, if you're, if the world is too much with us and we're just too active and too engaged, then our body can't let go of those toxins. Your body can't let go of those wastes. I mean, I remember I had a patient once um, as a Jamaican woman and she uh, was suffering from constipation and we we're talking about maybe some of the reasons for it. And then she told me that, yeah, she, under her bed, she had a whole bunch of boxes and old books that she hadn't gone through in years. And I said, yeah, well, why don't you go through that? That's, you know, you're lying in bed, you're thinking about all that stuff under there. And that's kind of creating this, this state of emotional tension. So why don't you do that? And so she did that. She came back, she said, doctor, it's right as rain, you know, and she was <laughs> on a regular basis because she dealt with that emotional congestion for her. I mean, it was just stuff under her bed, but for her, it represented something that she needed to let go of. And you think about issues like constipation and people who hold on to their stool. Yeah, for sure. There is this issue of holding on that needs to be addressed. This, this, this capacity to just let things go and allow the flow to happen is not something that we in the West are very good at. You know, we need to retrain it. So one of the key things in any detoxification program, and this is true for Ayurveda, is that you can't be working. You can't be trying to function like normal. You have to make some significant change because if all your energy is being taken up by your brain doing these different activities and all these worries and concerns, there's no energy left over for upregulating detoxification. So go on a holiday, go to your cabin, take some time off of work, do whatever you can to reduce the inputs and this will allow more energy to increase the outputs. Fascinating. This is what we're trying the to do. Of rest. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all running so, fa- so fast, so hard, uh, that the concept of rest, relaxation, timeout, rejuvenation almost seems quaint. And so I almost, you know, as I listen to you, as I listen to some of the other amazing docs and healers we have on our podcast, it just reminds me that it's almost like we need a lifestyle redesign. Uh, that the oh, lifestyle I agree. That, right? That with the lifestyle we're leading, unless we redesign the whole lifestyle, like this piecemeal approach, isn't going to work. I mean, that's what I did. I completely redesigned my entire 15 months of life um, to 100% heal. But that's hard to do as well. And it's almost like our entire society needs to redesign its, its, uh, its lifestyle. So, I would agree with and you. You're, you're, yeah, and that's not easy to do because we no. live in a highly complex world charged with media coming at us at all times. I mean, you you can't watch a show without a dripping, you know, cheesy pizza staring at you or a Cinnabon or some chocolate Kit Kat break. You know, how do you not go straight to the pantry and stuff your fat, stuff your face? So it's not easy, I think, living in the world we live in and not overindulge across the board. Well, we have to look at where it's coming from, you know, because a lot of people, one of the reasons why they engage in these behaviors, and and, and most of these negative food behaviors are focused around eating sweet foods, I would say, is that when we talk about, last time we talked about the manifestation of quality and how that's important in Ayurveda. So when we think about eating sweet food in Ayurveda, sweet is represented by the feeling of love. So, you know, when someone's being sweet to us, 
when a baby is breastfeeding and drinking the sweet milk, when we're engaged, when we're in a new relationship and we feel the sweetness of that love or, you know, the, the connection you might have with your child when you're hugging them. All this sweet quality is something which is something we all need to sustain ourselves. And because in our Western society is so fractured, we're lacking that sweetness. And so what we're doing is we're, we're using sweet foods as a proxy for love, essentially, we're, to get our emotional needs met. You know, and I think it's fairly obvious. I mean, just imagine the... Wow, no, know, the, it's the, the, not. The, that's the first well, time okay. I've heard that. That's incredible. That is, well, just, that is a, a great insight. The, just imagine a, a young woman who broke up with her boyfriend. And so she, what does she do? She gets a container of Haagen-Dazs ice cream and puts on a rom-com and eats the entire container. Now, it makes her feel better initially. Why is she doing it? She's trying to create or recreate that sweetness in her life, right? And so many, many of us are driven by that. And what I try to do with my patients is get them to realize that they have a more, a deeper need for love and connection and that their desire for these sweet foods and junk foods, these, these uh, impulse foods, this is a proxy for some unmet emotional need. And so we look to find ways to meet that need. Wow, that's very profound. I know it's going to change how I look at my sugar cravings because um, I'm a complete sugarholic. It's, it's the big joke in the family. Uh, don't leave any cake or cookie around because it will not survive, Rena. <laughs> but, um, you know, so the question is if you, if you look inwards and you say, well, I guess I need a lot more sweetness than I have in my life, then you, I guess, again, back to the whole lifestyle redesign, you redesign your life to bring some more sweetness into your life. Yeah. Um, Doesn't that sound yeah. good to everybody? I mean, who who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to have more emotional sweetness in their life? Absolutely. And I guess the question, though, is how do you prioritize and make time for it? Because that's the other thing, right? So if you look at a typical 30-plus, 40-plus year-old person who's got a career, who's got kids, who's married, there are so many priorities in line before you get to the, I need to bring more sweetness into my life, that you never get to it, right? It's that to-do list that's a mile long, and you're at the bottom of that to-do list. And I think something that I'm starting to hear, and I'd love to get your thoughts, is how do you rearrange that to-do list and say, nope, I am a priority. And so my needs come first today, and I'm going to prioritize. How do you help your patients? find the time and reprioritize their list? Well, when it comes to sweetness, it's usually not an isolated, individuated experience. So it's usually not necessarily just about getting your needs met, but can be about getting um, a broader need met. You know, so you know, one of the ways to help people that are suffering from depression and 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 just feeling lost in life is to get them to volunteer and spend time with others who are less, less fortunate than they are. And they give that energy and it makes them feel incredibly happy and well that they're making a difference in people's lives. You know, it's about sweetness has a natural drawing uh, together energy. It's like a, like a gravitational pull. So it's, it's, it's about we, it's not about me necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's about reaching out and connecting. And that's why I think in places like India, very often interactions with people are often so sweet because people yes. maintain that perspective. It's, it is about the we. It's not about just 
me. But in the West, we're kind of conditioned to think like that. You know, we have to achieve That's for right. ourselves and, you know, just it's the fight for the top. So ultimately, mm-hmm. what it should do, hopefully, is bring up some of these existential questions, which would, one of which might be, what am I going to value on my deathbed? We're all going to die. But what do you want to be thinking about is that, ah, oh, you know, I'm sure glad I excelled in my career and I got all the things checked off on my to-do list and I got a lot of money, even though none of my kids talk to me and, you know, I haven't <laughs> talked to my brother in 25 years or whatever it is. It's like, what is the experience of your life that you want to have at the end of your life? Is it going to be one where it was just about a, a bunch of items on a list or w- would it, will it be about the memory of creating connection with others and the love that you generated over your lifetime. So I think most people, it would be the latter. You know, that's what you want to be remembering at the end of your life. That's, those are the things which are going to be significant to you because, you know, when you're ill and infirm, it doesn't matter if you've got a whole bunch of money. But you know what? If you have people that love you and are taking care of you, you know, be, and it's genuine, it's not because you're paying them, you know, such a feeling of gratitude will arise within your heart. And so we can't look at this issue without addressing the broader existential one, which is, you know, what do I want to create in my life? Is it just a bunch of numbers, that quantitative model, or is it that qualitative model that we're after? And I think for most people, ultimately, it is the latter. We want to have the quality of life. And we know that that isn't necessarily tied to income. It isn't tied to possessions you know, there's a certain amount of possession and a certain amount of, of income we need, but mm-hmm. a lot of people are, are, are overachieve in that area and mm-hmm. don't get the other needs met as a result. Absolutely. Great. Well, let's get on to our 10 questions with our expert section of this interview. Sure. Unless you have any other parting, any other parting tips on detox? Oh, well, I just, in my food is medicine program, I've got a four hour lecture on detoxification. So there's a lot I can, a lot I can do to talk about detoxification. Yeah, that that book. Yeah, yeah. Well, that book, food is medicine. It's, it's also a 16 part uh, training program for, for people who want to get really in depth into that material. So detoxification is a part of that. And there are many layers and levels uh, that you can look at. But I think I kind of touched on the major parts. I mean, I didn't talk about all the different herbs that you could use. You know, you didn't ask me about uh, triphala, for example. Is triphala good for detoxification? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that can be very helpful. It's in Ayurveda, triphala is called mala shodhana. Shodhana means purification. Mala means waste. So it helps to purify the body of waste. It works on the liver, it works on the digestive tract, and it helps to eliminate the excess waste of the body while strengthening all the different organ systems. So something like triphala could be very good to include in your protocol along with eating kitchari for a week or two weeks. And there's so many more herbs and so many other measures that you could employ. But one of the differences I would say about Ayurveda and other approaches in natural medicine that maybe aren't as sophisticated is that Ayurveda is always seeking to restore, return someone to a state of balance. You know, a lot of people will go and do things like colonics and they'll just get like 20 colonics in a row. And my experience is that that messes up their gut. It messes up their ability to have a proper bowel movement and it doesn't restore them to a state of health. It applies this approach of cleansing. Yeah, we need to purify the bowel of all its nasty gunk in there, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. seek to restore balance. 
And so that's the emphasis here with detoxification is that we're trying to restore one to a state of balance and allow the natural mechanisms of detoxification to function without impairment. Makes a lot of sense to me. All right. Thank you so much for sharing uh, the, the tip on Thrifla. And I do take it. By the way, is there... Is, is there typically a time frame when you shouldn't continue taking Thrifla more than 90 days, more than three weeks? What's, what's the typical time frame that you recommend? Well, Thrifla is one of those herbs. It's called a resina or a formula. It's called a resina, meaning that you can take Thrifla all the time. There's no problem. Okay. Uh, so, however, it's always a good idea to insert some breaks in your routine to mix things up a little bit. Um, and and to change things up just to see how things are going. I don't think it's important not to be reliant on something. Like if you're using Triple F for your bowel movements and if without it you don't have a proper bowel movement, then I think there's a broader issue that needs to be addressed. But if you're just taking it as a general health tonic, because Ayurveda says it's good, it's a resign, a rejuvenative, then yeah, there's no problem in taking that all the time. Okay. Okay, well, that's good to know. All right, let's move on to our fun ding, 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 ding question section. So the first question okay. that comes in is dairy. What do you think about mm-hmm. dairy? Do you recommend it? And if not, what alternatives do you recommend? Well, it's funny, you know, because every Indian physician, anyone who comes out of India will extol the virtues of dairy because all the classical texts of Ayurveda do as well. They talk about it as being one of the best, most nourishing foods for human beings. It may seem a little counterintuitive because we're talking about the, the really the baby food for an entirely different species of animal, but I don't get caught up in that too much because humans do all kinds of weird things that might not necessarily seem exactly natural, like play musical mm-hmm. instruments and use iPhones and fly an airplane. So, right. you know, we have some allowance there uh, for innovation. So they've been consuming dairy in India for thousands of years, and it's been an important part of the diet for a very long time. However, it's very clear that when people consume dairy here in the West, they get sick and unwell. And so early in my practice, you know, 20 years ago, if someone was consuming dairy and had a myriad number of health issues, it was an easy thing just to remove the dairy and probably they're going to come back in a few weeks feeling 50% better. So how can that be? How can it be that people's experience in the West is so different than that traditionally ascribed in Ayurveda? And it has to do with the species of cow that we get the milk from. There's two species of cow, Bos indicus from India and Eastern Africa and Bos taurus, which is from Europe. And they produce genetically different types of milk. And the Bos taurus, the European species, which is we also have here in North America, produces milk which contains an A1 casein protein. And this A1 casein protein is digested, metabolized in a different way and produces inflammation in the body. However, mm. the milk from the Bose indicus, the Indian desi cows, they call it, contains none of this. It's an A2 milk. So there's this distinct difference between A1 and A2 milk. And you're starting to see that in the media now, some That's recognition right. of this difference. And certainly my own experience has been that people are, are, are much um, more able to deal with uh, A2 milk in terms of digestion, in terms of any kind of uh, adverse effects than they are with the A1 milk. So that's a big shift. And I myself, super allergic to dairy. I think I mentioned in the last interview that you know, if I consume even like um, 
a tablespoon of milk or something or the conventional mm-hmm. A1 milk, I will get joint inflammation for three or four weeks. Um, and I know that because I was in India and in Nepal, I was consuming dairy there every day, large amounts of it. And I came back on my flight, stopped through Frankfurt, you know, and I had a little piece of camembert cheese on my flight back from Frankfurt. And I came home, you know, to have joint pain for a few weeks after I ate that. So there's this Incredible. distinct difference between these two different types of milks. That's amazing. So what alternatives do you recommend for someone who's trying to be dairy free in the U.S.? And what do you think of, like sheep's milk, goat milk? Yeah, those are all good alternatives. We shouldn't call soya a milk. It's not a milk. A milk is is a substance that's produced by mammary glands. It's got protein. It's got fat. It's got sugar. It's got vitamins, minerals. Soy milk is just a bean that we, you know, we prepare as a broth, and uh, it's it doesn't have anywhere near the same diversity of nutrients and is should not be called milk. So it's, you know, if we called it soybean juice, I guess it might be a lot less popular. Uh, but yeah. essentially that's kind of what it is. You know, it's not, it's not really milk. However, if you're looking to cons- consume milk, mm-hmm. uh, you then, and you have problems with conventional milk, then typically goat milk or uh, sheep's milk, water buffalo milk, they could be good alternatives. The important thing to remember about milk is just that it's an ecology. It has bacteria in it. Uh, and that uh, you shouldn't just consume it like just right out of the fridge cold. All milk uh, should be heated up before consumed, if not consumed fresh from the cow itself. So, you know, if you're just right there while the cow is being milked, then you can drink that milk. But as soon as it cools to the local ambient temperature or, or is refrigerated, Ayurveda says that it is exceptionally bad for the body and, and needs to be purified and home pasteurized. And just like you might make some, like a chai masala at home where you bring the milk to a boil and they just allow it to simmer for five or 10 minutes, uh, that helps to sterilize it. Uh, and, um, that also helps to make it more digestible. So a lot of people's milk issues can be attributed also just by, you know, like kids will come out home from school and they'll open the refrigerator and open up a milk carton, glug, 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 drink all this cold milk with all this bacteria in there. I mean, we think that pasteurization kills bacteria, but it doesn't kill all the bacteria. If it, if it, if it did kill all the bacteria, then your milk wouldn't putrefy after a week or so. So flash pasteurization only kills some of the bacteria that would, that would turn it into a, into what they call clabber which is kind of a yogurt-like substance. So they kill that bacteria. They bring the milk to a temperature of about 72 degrees Celsius for about 10 or 15 seconds. It kills all those fermentated bacteria, but it leaves the heat-tolerant putrefactive bacteria intact. And so you can actually measure the bacterial cell count of conventional pasteurized milk and see that it contains a significant amount of, of unhealthy bacteria that you're swilling down every time you drink the cold milk. Wow. So, so one simple way that people could potentially prevent all their reactions to milk is just heating it up and maybe putting some spices in there like cardamom. Exactly. Exactly. Although wow. I think that uh, it should SPD? be with the A, A2 milk, not with the A1 milk. You, you, regardless of what you do with the I, A1 milk, if it's an amino reactive substance. So uh, if you are reactive to milk, then you're probably still going to be reactive to it. And a lot of what people gotcha. call lactose intolerance isn't lactose intolerance. It's, it's a reaction to the protein in milk, to the A1 protein. I gotcha. Gotcha. So it isn't, that clarifies a lot. 
So that's on dairy. And of course, I'm assuming you mean nut milks or not milks either, right? So no. almond milk, cashew milk, they're no. not milks. What are your thoughts on those though? Are they okay to drink? Well, what you're doing when you're making those things is you are mostly washing off the starches. And so they're starch rich extracts of nuts that usually are low in protein because you know if you ever made your own homemade almond milk or cashew milk you you soak it and then you blend it up and then you strain it out mostly what you're getting is the starch so it's usually just a starchy um, substance which doesn't contain much in the way of nutrients except for starches so it's not so good for your blood sugar you know i'm I'm not saying that you can't have it, but it's just, it's like eating white rice or something. It's just it's it's sort of empty of a lot of the nutrients that you need. And if you were using it like a milk as a as a source of protein and fat, you would be mistaken because it doesn't contain those. Of course, of course. No, that makes sense. Okay, so next question: artificial sweeteners. What are your thoughts on artificial sweeteners, and then specifically? Stevia and some of the other natural ones that have been getting a lot more attention, including monk fruit. Right, right. Well, you know, the research on natural sweeteners is a little murky. It's it's hard to get a good handle with regard to the overall impacts. If you want to come from from a scientific perspective, there's some research that some artificial sweeteners could be carcinogenic, they could be neurotoxic, but the science on them isn't clear. There's some research that shows that could be the case. There's other research that shows that that's not the case. The fact that these artificial sweeteners that have been approved for, you know, general use in, in food and beverages suggests that, at least for the regulators, there's enough confidence that they're not problematic. But for someone like myself, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not confident of that, you know, and, I, and I'm just referencing some experiences that I've had you know, you drink something with aspartame and get some little kind of mild headache or some kind of weird feeling in your head. You know, there is a reason why that might be happening because aspartame contains high levels of phenylalanine. And when you take any amino acid, highly purified, uh, and consume it in large amounts, uh, it will displace the absorption of other amino acids in our brain. And, you know, our amino acids are what we use to manufacture many neurotransmitters. So you could be altering the neurochemical balance of your brain by consuming some of these artificial sweeteners like aspartame. Also, aspartame has a methyl ester, so it's a source of methyl alcohol and methyl alcohol. No one recommends you ever consume methyl alcohol because it's toxic. So that's also a concern as well. So apart from the specific toxicities of these substances, which are a debate, however, one thing that's clear is, is that whenever you eat something sweet, regardless of whether it's actually calorically sweet or not, it still induces a similar response in the body. It, the brain still responds to it like it's sweet and still induces the same kind of metabolic problems that we see with eating caloric sweets. So we actually see that there can be no real benefit to consuming artificial sweeteners over uh, caloric sweeteners because they still induce the same kind of insulinemic response. They still induce an insulin response. And even this stevia? Can, even stevia can do that. So stevia can be very good at helping wean someone off of sugar and get their sugar consumption down and is probably better overall. But still, you're taking very powerful substances that are tricking the body into thinking that it's consuming something sweet and the body's still going to respond in, in part 
like you have consumed something sweet. So rather than just using replacements for sweet, ideally what we do is we, we train our orientation towards sweet. And that, you know, we, that's why we can't leave behind the emotional components of what sweetness represents because, once again, people are usually consuming these foods because they have some other unmet emotional need. So if we can address those things, then this desire for sweet uh, isn't all-consuming. Mm, gotcha. Okay. What about grains? So when I say grains, I mean beans, legumes, soy, corn. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Are those good for us, bad for us? How should they be prepared? Well, geez, I mean, that, that's a, a subject for a, a very long lecture because there's so many different types <laughs> of grains and different methods of preparation. You know, but just generally that, speaking? Oh, just generally speaking. So if I'm dealing with someone with autoimmune disease, then I'm definitely removing cereals, grains, legumes from their diet. Absolutely. That's what okay. I'm doing. If I'm not seeing those issues and, and digestive issues, then we are allowing cereal grains, but they need to be prepared. And I mentioned in the last interview that one of the primary ways that we do this is to use fermentation. Uh, and if we don't use fermentation, there's some other method of preparation. Like, so for example, they've been eating corn in Central America for thousands of years, mm-hmm. but they always, they always nixtamalize the corn. So they always, they would collect the ashes from a fire and they would put it in some water. And so it becomes a very alkaline substance. And then they would put the corn in there and they would, they would cook it essentially. And what this very alkaline uh, substance does is it breaks down the corn and deactivates some of those anti-nutrient factors. So then you can make what's called the masa, which then you would then use to make tortilla. But when you don't right. do this and corn isn't part of your diet, you end up getting a disease called pellagra which, you know, is characterized by what they call the four Ds. It starts with diarrhea, followed by dermatitis, then dementia, and then death. And if you look at the four Ds, they're remarkably similar to the progression of celiac disease. So what's interesting is is that when you fail to prepare these foods, according to their traditional methods, you put yourself at risk of disease. So this is one of the things that we really need to undertake is that whatever cereal, grain, legume, et cetera, that you're consuming, look to the culture of its origin and how it was traditionally prepared and follow those practices as best you can. And that's very, very smart, very wise. I had no idea that that, that celiac disease's progression was similar to something that uh, people have been experiencing under different names and different cultures. Uh, you know, there it is interesting how it's a cycle, right? Like it all comes around and all comes around. And if we do things that break the rules of nature, um, we pay the price. It's just the names change, right? The labels change, the titles change, like you're suffering from this illness. But you would have suffered from it 5,000 years ago if you were breaking the rules of, of how the body is meant to live. Um, next question mm-hmm. is on menopause. Mm-hmm. So um, what is Ayurveda's or what is your top tips for someone who's begun the process of menopause, going through all the awful symptoms, is there hope? Is there a, is there a remedy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a profound uh, time in a woman's life. You know, I mean, women are perhaps even more so than men are directed by biology. I don't think that many women would argue that their emotions and their state of mind is not affected by their menstrual cycle. You know, 
And, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's pretty obvious, you know, it's even if you are relatively balanced, you can still feel it when you're, you know, PMSing and, you know, when you're ovulating and all those different changes that happen and the ups and downs of all of that. And what's happening with menopause is that that is being removed. That no longer becomes the paradigm by which you self-identify. And it's a kind of alchemical process where there's a significant transformation within the woman. And you know, one thing that happens very often for women is, is that they suddenly discover that they don't really need men anymore. You know, if they were heterosexual, <laughs> that they're like, well, you know, I'm not ovulating and I'm not menstruating. I'm no longer spending, you know, every month generating this, you know, party in my belly to host a baby, you know, and most of the time I don't get pregnant and, you know, but now yeah. I have menopause, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a slave to biology anymore, you know? And so a lot of relationships start to go through some problems or some changes or right around this time as the woman realizes that the paradigm has shifted for her. That's usually significant. It, and it's something that for a lot of women, I think can be a real challenge because they're like, why do, why do I feel so differently? I don't feel the same because you're not, you're undergoing this sort of alchemical process or change. That's, that's huge. It's, 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 one of the biggest changes that will happen in your life. Now, what we know from a physiological perspective is that your ovaries begin to shut down and you're no longer synthesizing and releasing the hormones estrogen and progesterone. And both of those hormones are associated with all the secondary female sexual characteristics that, you know, make you feel like a woman. And so mm-hmm. the loss of them has a big impact upon that. That, that, that feeling or that uh, of, of being a woman. So what the body does to compensate or right around this time is it tends to start storing more fat and, and leading up to menopause, the body starts to store more fat. And if it's storing fat in a healthy way, then you'll typically notice that your butt and your thighs are getting a bit bigger than they were before. Um, and hopefully not your belly, you know, cause that's a different, that's induced by insulin and cortisol, but it's, it's estrogen, which stimulates this fatty accumulation And you store estrogen in your fat. It becomes an organ for storing, uh, uh, the the fat becomes an organ for storing estrogen. And your body will induce these thermogenic hot flashes to increase metabolism to release the stored estrogen uh, within those fatty tissues or to convert the androgens, which are still being secreted by your gene glands, which then circulate to fatty tissues and are converted by an enzyme into estrogen. So fat becomes a source of estrogen for you and your peri- and postmenopausal life. And so we see that a lot of women, when they go through menopause, if they can carry a little more fat on their butt and their thighs, that they tend to have a lot easier time with menopause. It's usually the women that are quite thin and skinny. They have a harder time with it. So that's a hot flash. That's why you get hot flashes. Your body's trying to liberate stored estrogen. And if you have a lot of hot flashes, your body's trying to liberate estrogen that might not be there because you might be a skinny body type or your body just hasn't stored enough. And so we need to supplement or support that, that loss or that deficiency. Now, fortunately, there are some fantastic herbal medicines for this, and there are also good foods as well that are naturally rich in what we call phytoestrogens. So all those legumes, if they're properly prepared, can be a very good source of phytoestrogens. Uh, Vegetable sprouts like uh, broccoli sprouts, alfalfa sprouts, also can be a good source of phytoestrogens. There are herbs also that we can use. 
to help regulate and manage menopausal symptoms, herbs like black cohosh, herbs like sage. Sage is one of my best herbs for reducing menopausal hot flushes. Very, very good for that. Dry uh, or I'll fresh? Use a, just a regular garden sage. You can just prepare it as a herbal tea or you could use it in formulation as a tincture. Okay. It just, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's what we call a refrigerant. It cools the body down, so it can help to manage, especially before you go to bed, if you drink uh, some of that before you go to bed, not right before, so you don't have to get up and go pee, but maybe an hour or so, uh, it will actually go a long ways to help mediating the flushes. But we have to give the body something else that's nourishing because you're losing this feminine essence, so we have to support that. So this is why we also use herbs, the, the Indian herb Shatavari, which you might have heard of before. Mm. It literally yeah. translates to she who has 100 husbands. And um, yes, I know. So what this herb does is it helps to support that declining feminine essence, essentially, and it also can help boost estrogen status. Uh, another herb that's really good for this is the Donggui, the Chinese Angelica sinensis. Uh, peony root is another one that's good for this. So I've just given you a few herbs there that can be a part of a protocol to help a woman manage this transition. But it is a transition. It is a normal stage of life. It is not a pathology like it's typically viewed in Western medicine. And hence, there are uh, really useful traditional ways to support this transition and make it as seamless as possible. What about the weight gain in menopause? That seems to be another really big issue. I'm understanding now sort of the physiology behind it, but what can women who are putting on weight not able to lose it, what do you recommend? So I don't worry about the, the hip and butt fat. You know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you think that at age, you know, 55, you should have the butt of an 18-year-old girl, I can't do anything about that. That's just not <laughs> okay. going to be the case, you know. You that just might broke be everyone's heart. Well, it shouldn't be the case, should it? I mean, I mean, no. But you know, you know the world we live. You know the you American culture we live in, right. and the media, um, the media images that we are bombarded with. And well, I mean, that's a whole different conversation about how big butts were considered a sign of beauty in Europe for a very long time, even in India. It was a sign of beauty. It was a sign of fertility, and it was appreciated and. Um, you know, now we're suddenly living in this weird world where the skinnier you are, the more beautiful you're considered, which, again, I'm sure, you know, 100 or 500 years from now, we're going to look back and say, what an odd time period that was. But given we live in that world and there's these bizarre expectations, uh, but I understand what you're saying, that, you know, at that point, I think women just need to understand that your body is trying to do something and you trying to look like a 16-year-old boy may not be in your best interest. No, no. But... There is a difference between being obese and unhealthy versus having a little extra padding on your butt right. and your and your thighs that would be a source of estrogen for you. One of the things that I will say is, is that all women throughout their lifetime should maintain a waist to hip ratio of less than 0.8. That means that the circumference of their waist, which is the measurement that goes around your belly button, just below your ribs and above your hip bone, that should mm-hmm. be 80% or less than the circumference of your hips. And that measurement is taken across your pubic bone and, and across the uh, greater trochanter, that bumpy uh, part of your hips that sticks out at the side. So take those two measurements, measure them, and your 
your waist should be 80% that of your hips. If you maintain that, you will reduce your risk dramatically of cancer, cardiovascular disease, of diabetes, dementia, risk of suicide, sleep apnea, the list goes on and on and on. It's actually the best clinical indicator. Uh, it actually outperforms, outperforms BMI, it outperforms uh, any blood test. It is the best overall predictor of health. And what I'm saying then is, is that as a woman, you want to maintain to whatever degree your body naturally has it, that feminine hourglass-like shape. Now, some women are very, very curvy and some women are less curvy, but all women are going to have some kind of curve there, right? Just because, right. you know, if they, if they, mm-hmm. you know, if they, if they grew properly and they just, uh, you know, don't have some kind of genetic abnormality, women have this natural hourglass shape. You should maintain that throughout your right. entire life. And just accumulating a bit of fat on your butt and thighs is not going to throw that off. But if you've got that apple shape, if you've got that weight accumulating around your middle and you're perimenopausal, menopausal, that's an indicator for a dramatically increased risk of all the diseases that affect us in the Western world. So you want to make sure you undertake measures to address that. But that fat that you accumulate around your belly, that's all induced by insulin, not estrogen. And that relates mostly to the overconsumption of sweet foods. So it is interesting that a lot of women who are going through menopause, they start to gorge on those sweet foods because they're not getting that sweetness met within their life. And so instead of making those changes that they need to make in their life to get that, they'll just, you know, eat ice cream and pastries and, you know, wonder why they're getting fat. So there needs to be sort of a a recognition of what's happened to their bodies and what their physiological and emotional needs are. Got it. But nothing specific like herbs or any other dietary changes that you would recommend for someone who's hormonal, who's menopausal, sorry, that's going through some tremendous weight gain issues. Reduce the amount of carbohydrates that you're consuming. Follow that diet that I recommended earlier, which is eat a fat, protein-rich breakfast. Avoid eating many carbohydrates throughout the day. Introduce some carbohydrates for your evening meal. Otherwise, avoid sugars and get your emotional needs met through creative release, through hanging out with other women. You know, this is something I think that becomes really important for women as they go through menopause is to have this connection with other women that are going through a similar experience. And I think, you know, hanging out with a bunch of your girlfriends, you know, uh, playing djembe can be way more nourishing than sitting at home with a container of ice cream, you know, wondering why your so husband true. isn't paying attention to you. So true. What great advice there. Um, girl power. Let's, let's start some heel circles in different cities. That's one of the things we've done is we've started a heel circle monthly group that comes and meets together. And it's just once a month with, um, and we talk, we share, we meditate. It's just been fabulous. Last question for this interview, allergies. So they're rampant, Mm. more and more kids are getting them. What's your response to someone who says, my kids have allergies, I have allergies, I have seasonal allergies, I'm popping pills. What can I do to be allergy-free? Well, that was me. I was like that. I was allergic to everything. Really? I I hated this time of year. May was a kid. I hated it because I was just a mess. I was sneezing all the time and you know, you sneeze 40 times in a row, you get a sore throat, you feel like you're sick. So every mm-hmm. spring it would come along and I just feel like I was sick. I get like a two or three month cold. 
I don't have that problem anymore. I don't have that issue. But I don't eat also the foods that I used to eat. I don't eat any flour products. I don't eat any dairy. I avoid sugar for the most part. Uh, I don't have the same amino reactivity. One thing is, is that imagine if you have seasonal allergies and there's all this pollen that's floating around and your mucous membranes are heavy and sticky and capture that pollen as you breathe it in and out of your nose and they get stuck in the mucosa. If you have, if you eat really sticky, heavy, congesting foods, your mucosa, your mucus is going to be a lot sticky and heavier and is going to catch all that pollen and not let it go. So by changing the quality of your diet, you actually are able to resist the pollens from activating an immune response. This is apart from the fact that all those foods just kind of set off your immune system so that all it takes, like the straw that breaks the camel's back, is just this one external influence of pollen to just allow everything to just go into a state of disorder. So allergies are like building blocks. Let's say you know you need to go over a threshold of 100 to have an allergic symptom. Stress accounts for 20%. Uh, let's say that what you're eating accounts for another 70%. So there you're just at 100 and then pollen comes along, boom, you're right over the threshold. Some of those things you can remove and some of those things you can't. You might be able to reduce your stress, but probably not completely. But you could right. end up reducing a lot of the foods that you eat that are problematic. And I figured this out when I was 18, that if I didn't eat dairy and flour in the months leading up to hay fever season, I wouldn't have any hay fever symptoms. I wouldn't. You know, and wow. I figured that out. Uh, at a fairly young age because I didn't, you know, it was so debilitating for me. I just wasn't worth it. So it, it can be a challenge, though, because some people just really like those foods and have a hard time giving them up. And it's this, you know, it's like the, you know, a person that, that eats the foods and gets heartburn every time they eat that food, but they keep eating it. You know, it's like, well, and they know that it causes heartburn, but they keep doing it to themselves anyway. So ultimately, it's like, well, what, what do you prefer in your life? You know, that five minutes of gustatory satisfaction or, you know, days of feeling unwell. So for me, it was a pretty easy assessment to make. So avoid those flour products, dairy products, sugar. Absolutely. Support your liver function because your liver is the organ which is detoxifying all these substances. And if it's overwhelmed, then uh, these substances that are coming into the body uh, are not going to be properly processed and it's going to increase the overall inflammatory load. So you want to support the function of the liver. And that's the way a lot of traditional herbs work as well. If you have seasonal allergies, like in your nose, there's a technique that we use from Ayurveda that's really, really good for this. It's called nasya. Have you ever come across it? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So nasya, what you do is in the morning when you get up is you take a few drops of sesame oil, uh, two or three drops of sesame oil, and instill them into each nostril and each time you do it just snort that oil back into your nasal pharynx and that oil will come down the back of your throat and it will bring with it mucus and you just want to like expectorate that mucus out to your mouth and you follow that by by yoga practice called uh, nadi shodhana anuloma viloma which is alternate nostril breathing this technique takes literally three or four minutes a day but if you do that in conjunction with those dietary changes, you won't have any, any seasonal allergies. And I've treated this many, many times. I'm very confident in, in that basic technique. Really? So the, the nasya oil that I've typically used is the one that I purchase, you know, the Dr. Ladd's 
nasi oil. I just get it off of Amazon. It has like four or five things in it. You're saying it could be something as simple as just sesame oil that you just take a dropper and pour in your each nostril. Is that correct? Yep. yep. Wow. I, I didn't realize it was that simple. And, it can be, uh, yeah. So, how, so let's say there's someone who's listening and, and has severe allergies and they say, you know what, I'm, you've inspired them, Todd. They're going to fix their diet. They're going to get rid of the dairy and the grains and the sugars and the white flowers. And they're going to go in this very healthy diet. And they're going to do the sesame oil in the nose because they're going to watch some videos on YouTube. And they're going to do their naughty should the exercise. How quickly can they heal? How quickly can they start to see relief? Oh, in a matter of weeks. Typically, they should start seeing results within a week. And... I would say by two or three weeks, they should notice a, a very big uh, reduction in symptoms, and by a month, they should be symptom-free. Now, that might not be every single person's case. Some people might have like very long-standing issues, but when the correct measure is applied, you know, it's like a key in a lock, and everything just follows suit. So it it, it it's not that difficult to promote those changes. It takes you know, it's just a, a lot of mental conditioning because, you know, people aren't usually aware of how significant it is to stop eating bread because it's such a go-to food for them, right? Like they come home from work, they're hungry, have some bread, right? So when you remove that from their diet, they're like, well, what? there's nothing else to eat. Of course, there's lots That's of right. things to eat, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like that initially. So That was me 18 does, months ago. I have nothing yeah. to eat. I'm going to starve. It takes some retraining of the mind, and so that's a bit right. of a process. So, you know, if if someone is seeing me as a patient and I can walk them through all these steps, then absolutely, it's just a matter of weeks. For someone doing it on their own that doesn't have that support, it, it may take them a little longer, or there'll be, you know, some um, issues that arise that they'll have to work through. Uh, but nonetheless, if they just follow that basic protocol of avoiding sugar, flour products, mm-hmm. dairy. Just if they just did that for me and did nothing else, didn't even bother doing the Nasi or the Nadi Shodana, they will get significant results. Wow. Well, you now, heard it here. Yep. Go ahead. And well, there's also just some additional things. I mentioned herbs that they can take. Uh, for years, I prescribed a really cheap, effective Chinese patent formula called P Min Can Wan. And it's, it, it helps to break up all the congestion in the respiratory system. So it's P min can one. It's P E next word M I N next word K A N and then W A N, which means tablet. P min can one. They're very cheap. You can get them off of Amazon. Uh, they also go by the name nasal clear and you can take somewhere between three and five of those little green pills two to three times a day while you are engage in this weaning process, and that will provide some very good herbal support to alleviate your symptoms. And will that also help with things like red eyes, itchy allergy eyes, or is that primarily Absolutely. for congestion? Absolutely. No, it's from the okay. same, it's the same allergic reaction. So I don't get that either. Okay. You know, when I was a kid wow. eating all those foods, we had cows and uh, our backyard used to border on a pasture and I would cut the lawn and I would just and I'd be feeding the cows the grass. I would just be covered in hives, sneezing my head off. I can literally stick my head into fresh-cut grass. I don't have any mm. reaction to it. Whereas before, it would it would send me into an allergic spiral. That's incredible that the body gets so sensitive to something so basic as grass, and you do a few things, and it just calms down. I mean, just it sounds so simple 
given that there are billion-dollar industries that are built around helping people with this issue. And you, you make it sound so simple, Todd. So, well, well, just consider gonna... this one thing. What is wheat? Wheat is a grass. So if you have allergies to grass, stop eating it. Mm. How that? There you go. How profound is that? Mm, you just, yeah, you're overloading your body that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there's a whole fad around drinking um, wheatgrass. That's shots, shots <laughs> yeah, and shots of wheatgrass. <laughs> it's a different thing. I mean, the the grass itself doesn't contain the same amino acid substances as the seed itself. We talked about that right. a little bit last time. But nonetheless, right. I mean. Uh, I know that if I have wheatgrass, I feel it in my body and it's not necessarily a positive thing. And I think some people take it because it actually induces an allergic response and they get kind of pepped up. They get kind of stimulated from this allergic response. It's the same effect that sometimes people get from taking spirulina, some of these other green foods that might be a little toxic to us. They Mm -hmm. get a kind of a stimulus response effect. And mm-hmm. it's really just the nervous system going to a little bit of overdrive, but it's not necessarily a good thing. So spirulina, I, I had not heard that about spirulina. I'd absolutely heard about wheatgrass and how if you have allergies to wheat, you really shouldn't be drinking wheatgrass juice, no matter what the new fad says. But I had not heard the same around spirulina. I'd, I'd heard that both chlorella tablets and spirulina are are fantastic in terms of anti-inflammatory and healing and having micronutrients. Um, I guess we have one more question for you. What are your thoughts on those two? Well, you know, we all live in the same world, and we can't say that um, people's experiences of reality could be so different so as to create all this confusion. But uh, spirulina is a blue-green algae. It's a contaminant of freshwater uh, fresh water supplies so that public health officials who are given the task of ensuring healthy, safe water, when they see blue-green algae growing in our, our aquifers, then they shut down the water supply. Then they purify that water. They tell, pe- they tell people and their dog, owner, dog owners, and stuff, don't let your dog go into this lake because there's a, a blue-green algae bloom. So it's a contaminant of water on the one hand hmm. and then on the other hand it's a supposed superfood so how can we live in the same reality and say that both are true the reality is, is that if you were walking past a lake and it had blue green algae growing in it you wouldn't stop there to get water out of it you'd be like "Ooh, i'm not gonna get water from Very that it's all slimy and green you know you want to get your water from a fast flowing glacial creek it'd be great that's what you want but not from some you know congested slow moving body of water that has all these things yeah stagnant (laughs) pond you wouldn't want to do that and and the reality is is that there just isn't a history of people eating the blue green algae uh, in any significant way now that said I don't have the same problems with the with the green algae with the chlorella I don't see any issues with that. But on a scientific basis, we know specifically that the blue-green algae can contain the neurotoxin that the chlorella does not have. So this is my concern, is that the blue-green algae has one particular neurotoxin called BMA, BMAA. Uh, it's a well-defined neurotoxin. It's established in the medical literature. 
Um, and as far as I know, all the companies that are producing spirulina do not test for all the different toxins that are naturally found in spirulina and they don't publish them and they don't have any like standard limit for acceptability, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a little bit like the wild west. So I might not be against spirulina if those manufacturers could absolutely say that they tested their product for all the different types of neurotoxins that are naturally found in spirulina or potentially found in spirulina and ensure that they're not in there, but they're not doing that. And that's why I caution people against them. Got it. Got it. And would the effect of that neurotoxin be immediate or over time? Be over time. And it would cause um, like an ALS-like like, uh, symptomology, like Lou Gehrig's oh, wow. disease. Yeah. So we're talking severe problems. Yeah. You know, I'm happy to send you a paper on it. There's a landmark paper that was written on it. Um, yeah. And I've also... How are these things being allowed? I mean, it's really unfortunate that something that could cause such severe long-term reactions is allowed to be sold with no supervision whatsoever and is openly marketed and supported by a lot of really famous popular people and so of course a lot of people like me that listen to them say hey this is this if so and so is recommending spirulina i'm going to add it to my diet not really understanding that there might be some severe uh, repercussions down the road uh, according to what you're sharing absolutely um I actually I wrote a blog on this, and I you know I've tried to publicize it and let people know. I've I've spoken out against uh, blue green algae uh, many times. Um, it's it's not to say that I'm a hundred percent against it, but I have a lot of concern about where it's sourced, how it's manufactured, and what kind of testing that they use. And I can tell you that the hype around it. Because blue green algae started off as a multi-level marketing product, and that's why there's this persistent hype around it, because it still has that same kind of hard sell to it. You know that this is the one thing that's going to change your life, and it's, I just it doesn't do it. I haven't seen it, and, you know, because I've been familiar with it for for 30 years, and I've seen people take it and it not make any change, and sometimes make some uh, deleterious changes to their to their health. So, here's the thing. You know, I'm affiliated with Ayurveda. Ayurveda has been around for thousands and thousands of years. When you look at a thousand years of time, it's not that many human generations. It's not that right. you know, much time for people to get something right. So mm -hmm. my general thesis is that if it hasn't been around for a thousand years, I'm not just willing just to trust it. You know, that sounds like maybe a little obtuse. But the thing is, is that, yeah, a thousand years isn't that much time to really test if something is true. And that might seem kind of weird to say because in, in medicine, we have all this evidence. But one of the things you understand about medicine is that medicine has about a 40-year shelf life, which is to say that clinical truths only last about 40 years before they begin to fall so apart. True. And, you know, you see this all the time. Like, this is the state of the art for treating this particular disease. 40 years from now, it'd be like, you know, we were doing it completely wrong. We had it backwards. And now they will never so admit true. it like that. But it's like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. We do, so, you know, we don't do electroshock therapy for, you know, PMS so like we used to, you know, um, you know, we don't use HRT anymore for menopausal women like we used to. But um, so the thing is, you have to understand that if something hasn't been around for a long time, it hasn't really stood that test of time. And that's why I appreciate Ayurveda and these other traditional systems medicine so much, because they've, they've been vetted by generation after generation to determine whether or not they're safe and effective. 
And something like Spirulina, it doesn't have that history behind it. It doesn't. It, 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 it's really something that just came about in the 1980s um, as a quick, as a, as a, as a get rich scheme for some people that would harvest uh, the blue green algae in Klamath Lake, which is sitting on a migratory bird root, which is full of bird poop. You know, so the fecal coliform counts were super high in the original product. I mean, it's just, I could go on and on about it, but I think it's important when you're placing your faith in natural medicine, make sure that it isn't misplaced by a flash in the pan. Make sure that it has the empiricism behind it, because if it doesn't have the science behind it necessarily, then you want to make Mm -hmm. sure that it is a long held traditional practice. And I think that's what I'm realizing. Yeah, that it really goes back to what were your ancestors eating? What was their diet and lifestyle like? At least from an Indian perspective, I mean, we have a very rich tradition and culture, and it is lost now to those of us who've not been in India. I mean, I wasn't raised in India, and so uh, my exposure to it has been minimal. But whenever I would visit, it was very clear that they all kind of had some, you know, the way they ate their food, when they ate their food, what they mixed with what, sort of the the whole meal was very structured and apparently it was all based on word of mouth, daughter, you know, kids learning from parents how to cook their food and when to eat what and uh, a lot of rich history in eating the right way for health that is certainly lost to a lot of us. And I think you're reminding us again, go back to basics, go back to the trusted source of information for your own personal health. So I may be looking to my Indian tradition, but someone from Europe might be looking to their tradition to seeing what foods were were eaten in their culture. And maybe someone from Mexico or Spain is going to go back to their tradition. And so really going back to your own ancient traditions and cultures in terms of eating for health. Is, is that a fair statement? It is, but we live in a global culture and you know, I'm inspired by, by that, you know, look at me, I'm a, I'm a white guy with blue eyes that practices Ayurveda. So, you know, certainly isn't a part of my family tradition. So I think that we have so much to teach each other that I don't, I don't see like distinct borders around like ethnicity and geography. Uh, I think that we, we can all benefit from that knowledge. And then of course, we always need to relate it to our individual self. So, yeah, given that I'm Northern European, Northern European heritage, there's some things that are practiced in Ayurveda or India, which might not necessarily be ideally appropriate to me. But it doesn't mean that I should just follow, you know, like the ancient traditions of England or something, you know, even if they could be unearthed and much, much of that has been lost. You know, we have to because there's been so much damage to traditional knowledge that it's a patchwork and we have to, we have to bring it together. So I'm inspired by all these different global traditions and we have to pay attention to individual factors. And of course our own ancestry is important, but even more than that ancestry, just our own individual experience is important. And and I, this is where it comes down to listening to your own body. There's no substitute for that. It's your body. You listen to it. You are, the best one to determine whether or not something is appropriate or inappropriate. So you need to listen to your body. Great words of wisdom. Todd, you're amazing. Thank you so much for taking all this great time to share your insights, share your learnings. Thank you so much and and keep doing the great work you're doing. And we'll post all the links uh, to your site, to your books, and uh, to some of the herbs that you mentioned in the show notes. 
But again, I want to thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. No worries. My pleasure. And for the rest of you, looking forward to seeing you on our next podcast. If you liked this, make sure you share, make sure you review, subscribe, so you can continue to live longer, healthier, and happier. Till next time, this is Rena. Have an awesome day. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.